When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. again to the Explaining History podcast uh, and tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the great terror um, of the late 1930s, 1937 uh, onwards uh, and try to kind of get a sense of what it is ordinary Russian people, ordinary Soviet citizens uh, must have been able to make of these uh, events around them. All too often when we look at state terror we fail to recognise the importance of this this um, bottom-up dimension. Um, once again, we're looking at the, the works of Sheila Fitzpatrick tonight uh, in uh, Everyday Stalinism, the, the book which um, was referred to probably the most we're looking at, um, the uh, history of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. Um, so... We're trying to get that that sense of how um, ordinary Soviet citizens either navigated this period of time or tried to make some form of sense of it. Often um, there was a a, a kind of a a process of of understanding change or imminent change in the Soviet Union. Often one would look at writings, uh, letters and articles um, by Stalin that appeared in uh, newspapers um, some Soviet citizens believe that they were adept at interpreting the nuance of these letters and trying to kind of decipher what it is um, the uh, what it is Stalin was saying and would, would try sometimes to kind of predict um, on the basis of um, Stalin's uh, writings what direction policy was going in Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, By the beginning of 1937, both educated and uneducated Russians were seeing signs that the time of national misfortune was at hand. The most important proximate cause for this perception was the failure of the 1936 harvest, which in the following winter and spring 
led to hunger in the countryside, breadlines in the towns, and a panicky fear that things would get still worse, as in 1932-33. to 33. In the countryside, rumours of imminent famine, turmoil and war flew around, as they had during collectivisation. So the, the, kind of the great crisis period that had preceded the Great Terror was obviously um, collectivisation, the famine that followed it, and the anti-Kulak campaigns. And there was, I mean, it's entirely reasonable for many Soviet citizens to look at food shortages and see some great calamity coming, not just hunger, but some great um, upheaval and turmoil based around the um, ever-problematic food supplies in the Soviet Union. Of course, the the terror and bloodshed of the collectivization and the uh, the Great Famine era was in large part about a kind of a, a, a mass theft of foodstuffs from the peasantry to transfer it to the urban proletariat and to use as a kind of uh, ex- uh, as export commodities to uh, industrialize Russia rapidly uh, and it was just adjudicated by Stalin and his inner circle that the peasants were the uh, easiest ones to to victimize Sheila Fitzpatrick writes there were other contributing factors since the beginning of the first five-year plan and collectivization, the regime and society have been under constant stress, strained to the utmost by the industrialization drive, the disaster of collectivization, the apprehension about the international situation that had put the country on a pre-mobilization footing. Within the Communist Party, the atmosphere became increasingly tense as the process of small p purging begun in 1933-34, was repeated in 1935 and again in 1936. After Kirov's murder, former oppositionists became targets of terror, and Zinoviev and Kamenev were tried twice and in 1936 executed for alleged responsibility. The, the murder of Kirov uh, is an event uh, in uh, Soviet uh, history, or so in uh, the kind of Soviet social history of the 1930s, akin to the assassination of John F. Kennedy uh, in 1963, in terms of the shock that it had on um, many ordinary Soviet citizens. Kirov, the Leningrad party boss, very popular politician, very charismatic politician, very well-known politician, and the um, effect of, of his assassination... Um, is uh, shouldn't be understated really. It, has, it, it places um, a huge degree of uh, of crisis or a sense of crisis, uh, and also of uh, uh, national mourning um, into the the lives of uh, a huge section of, of the, the Soviet populace. Um, the uh, attempt to associate. Stalin's opposition, or the, the former oppositionists to Stalin, um, with the assassination. To some seems absurd, um, to a great many it works. Um, the fact that the, the, the trials that uh, Kamenev and Zinoviev are, are put on are um, you know, public, uh, are 
uh, mass media spectacles. And it works not just on uh, Soviet citizens, but on foreign onlookers. If you read the diaries of Sydney, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, they look at the uh, trial of Zinoviev and think, well, he must have done something. There's no way uh, Stalin would be doing this if there wasn't some sort of rationale. Now, perhaps Sydney and Beatrice Webb and their kind of overall naivety about the Soviet Union aren't the best people to evaluate. But time and again, in the fellow traveller movement, the uh, left intellectuals and liberal intellectuals who um, were drawn to the... uh, the Soviet Union because of its successes in the five-year plans. Time and again, they look at the terror and think, a number of things they think. Firstly, this must be in some way justified because Stalin wouldn't be doing otherwise. They also think, well, didn't France have its terror and come through that and become a mature republic? Uh, And isn't Russia that sort of country where... You know, and this is a deeply colonial attitude in a way, isn't it? Russia, that sort of country where you have to do this kind of thing from time to time because they're sort of barbarians, really. Um, and um, there's no other way that you're going to turn this backward country into a modern power without, you know, firing squads. So um, it'll it'll all come out in the wash, you know. It'll, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelette. And um, is, this is probably unpleasant, but for, for the best. And also the people who, are, you know, Cameron Evans and Noviev and later Bukharin, they've all probably done something. And of course the terror begins as a, a purge of the party, just as um, kind of Mao recreates this later on during the, the Cultural Revolution. Um, the, the terror is aimed at party members initially, and it begins with expulsions, but later it radicalises itself and becomes more about uh, mass arrests and then uh, trials and execution. Um, all of the executions are done essentially um, legally. They, they are in line with Soviet law. These aren't extrajudicial killings. There are trials and sentences uh, and... The, the the sentences are, are penned into the, the Stalin Constitution of 1936. Um, Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, Almost 9% of those expelled in the most recent party purge, a total of 15,000, had been arrested as spies, kulaks, white guards, and scoundrels of various kinds. Yezhov told the Central Committee in December 1935, and there would have to be more arrests. As one speaker at the meeting put it, as soon as those expelled from the party get home, they start getting involved in counter-revolutionary activity. They should be smoked out before the real trouble begins. Now, this is, this is fascinating dialogue, and it speaks volumes. Firstly, let's look at the numbers. 9% of those expelled from the party um, have been arrested as, as spies. There's 15,000 people, so... Um, we're not talking about the top brass of the party. This goes down to um, regional and local party bosses and functionaries and um, uh, bureaucrats. Um, this is a, a, um, a, a kind of a, a purge of many different strata of the party. 
and the idea that they've been arrested as spies, kulaks and white guards. These are the kinds of people, or the, 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 the suspect enemy classes, who Stalin feared, if you didn't deal with them, would be there when uh, an enemy power crossed the border. These are the kinds of people who you get rid of. Otherwise, basically, you've got a big, big problem on your hands. You've got the problem of um, a fifth column, um, and a, a, an army of traitors in your midst that will rise up when perhaps Hitler or maybe another foreign power uh, invades. And a lot of the uh, explanation for the terror is this process that Stephen Kotkin in his second volume of um, the Stalin biography calls Waiting for Hitler that you have to get this country ready for the inevitable war and by killing off uh, those who would help the enemy then you're, you're, you're doing the most effective thing you're actually kind of waging the war before the first shot has been fired um, there's this, this concept again that you know if, once these people go home they're going to start engaging in, count, in the real counter-revolutionary activity and you've got to smoke them out Quite what it was they um, these the these enemies in inverted commas would be doing is is never ever really made clear. Um, they'll be doing something or other, communicating with one another secretly. Perhaps they know about stockpiles of weapons somewhere. Most all of this is in, in the in the realms of the imagination, um, but. Um, there is this kind of theme, and I've referred to it many, many times before, before on this podcast, uh, about there being um, a, a public face. The, 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 the Bolshevik idea of uh, individuals having a public face and a private face, and uh, the public face often being a mask. And the, in order to find out what lies behind the mask, you know, when the mask is dropped, what the truth really is, um, one, one needs to kind of go to some great, great lengths and stop. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
I insert essentially the, the Kulaks particularly are very good at pretending that they're now cooperating, pretending to be Soviet citizens. But what is in their heart? Um, you know, what is really motivating them? Are they really loyal to the revolution? Are they really loyal to the Soviet state? Um, and I suppose revolutions create this kind of sentiment of um, hyper-loyalism and hyper-vigilance. You can never really truly know whether somebody is of the true faith or not. Um, Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, The pool of ex-communist members grew until by early 1937 worried party leaders were pointing out that in some regions and enterprises the numbers of ex-communists equalled or exceeded the number of current party members. These people, it was assumed, were enemies, part of that inexorably expanding group that included not only everyone who had ever opposed the regime, but also everyone who the regime had ever injured, not to mention the entire capitalist world whose hostile encirclement threatened the survival of the Soviet state. Soviet political culture had developed no effective mechanisms for allowing errant sheep back into the fold. The needs for such mechanisms were recognised, or so one might conclude from actions like the party's readmission of former oppositionists, the return of civil rights to deported kulaks, and the attempt to destigmatize social aliens in the 1936 constitution. But these efforts rarely succeeded for long. Deportees remained tied to their places of exile. Former disenfranchised persons were still objects of discrimination, regardless of the constitution, and almost all former oppositionists were again expelled and arrested as enemies of the people. Within a few years of, the of their readmission, stigma was essentially permanent. Black marks on the record could not be expunged. And again, these black marks um, that can't be expunged, these explain a lot about the radicalisation of the terror. The Soviet Union is an immensely it's a kind of bureaucratic dictatorship um, that works on card indexes and names and lists and uh, files. If you find an individual who has been guilty of being a class enemy, a kulak, they can't shake this be, you know, other than adopting a new identity, which is a very risky thing to do. They can't shake this because it's written down. There's no way of hiding your class origins. There's no way of hiding the fact that you've been in the gulag. And in 1937 and 1938, when the state requires um, the purges to be done by quota, when party when NKVD bosses across the country are told, in order to show your loyalty to the boss, to, to Stalin, you need to be hitting the hitting, hitting targets of criminals apprehended, and if you're not doing that, then you have we have to raise serious questions about your zeal. Well, what does one uh, NKVD uh, officer do? You go back through the files. You need to find people, so you find people in your area who have been um, accused of being white guards or kulaks or whatever, and you bring them in and interrogate them um, and uh, pr uh, prosecute them and event or, or very quickly, when it comes to the, the three-man tweakers, um, decide just on names on lists who's to be, to be shot. 
sometimes when kulaks had been sent to the camps, uh, the NKVD would go and fish them out of the camp for um, re-interrogation and re-prosecution and then summary execution. Or um, kulaks who, who were leaving the camps were re-arrested when they left. And it's because this is a numbers game. And the uh, theory that Yezhov uh, and later Beria um, subscribed to was that if you if you did the numbers, you'd get the guilty people eventually. And it's better to shoot 100 innocent people and get one guilty one than let the guilty man get away. That The, gil- the guilty man getting away is, is too dangerous. On the subject of the Kulaks... Um, Added suspicion uh, came their way by the fact that they had initially, or many had initially, fled the countryside to to begin with. This, in the eyes of a kind of a, a super suspicious state, was the action of a spy. Sheila Fitzpatrick writes. Worse from the communist standpoint was the fact that many of these enemies, victims of the regime, punishment uh, regime's punishment and stigmatization, were no longer readily identifiable because they had masked themselves. Kulaks and their children had fled to towns and become workers, hiding their former identities. Former nobles had changed their names and taken on workers' humble accountants. Former priests and priests' children had moved to other parts of the country and become teachers. Persons expelled from big cities at the time of passportization had come back with forged passports and were posing as respectable citizens. Even communists expelled from the party for various derelictions had re-entered the party with forged cards. Was it not likely that with, within this huge community of the disaffected, networks and conspiracies would grow? Was not this a, cl- a new class of enemies, mutually linked, like the old privileged classes, by invisible bonds of sympathy and shared grievances? The suspicion and conspiratorial mentality that had always characterised the Soviet Communist Party had not declined, as might have been expected as the Revolutionary Party consolidated power. The failure of collectivization and the shock of Kirov's murder had seen to that. So here we, have, we see that the terror represents an immense insecurity on the part of the party. This is a party that has not uh, answered very many material needs of the Soviet people. There has been uh, forced industrialization, but uh, during that time, there's been hunger. During that time, there's been housing shortages. During that time, there has been the problems associated with rapid urbanization. Um, During that time, for example, crime in the Soviet Union is still a significant problem. There are very lawless towns and cities that party officials don't like to go to because they're too dangerous. And so you have a party that is acutely aware that it hasn't managed to address the needs of the people and that it has had um, the disaster of collectivization along the way. And just as Stalin uh, in 1934 at the Congress of the Victors feels... Um, and very kind of insecure about his position. So there is a kind of a, a conspiratorial 
and a paranoid mentality across the whole party of people wondering uh, perhaps there could be um, an, an opposite, you know, a, a secret oppositional organisation develop against us because, you know, on some level we deserve it or, uh, or, or, or it would at least be understandable if this did emerge because of the party's failings. And the centralisation of decision-making, the uh, destruction of uh, independent uh, centres of power within the party and the ending uh, under Lenin of internal party debate, which is obviously magnified un under Stalin, means that um, the party is uh, not the kind of robust structure that other political parties are where um, debate, internal debate, can be entertained by the leadership, can be ameliorated, can, policies can uh, shift. Um, the, the party's rigidity is one of the things that makes terror uh, necessary because the, the leadership of the party are incapable of any form of compromise um, or any form of um, discussion because of, of centralisation. Um, it is assumed by the leadership that um, oppositional views will meet in secret, will meet in private, will meet as conspiratorial factions. Um, the extent to which this is happening was, was actually quite, quite doubtful. Uh, but that was really, really immaterial uh, at, at the time. Um, Sheila Fitzpatrick writes, This produced its own problems. If everyone claimed to agree, how could one know what they were all really thinking? Party membership must be reviewed yet again. Denunciation encouraged, surveillance increased. The party had always required its members to be vigilant, but now there was a difference. They should be vigilant not only against the enemies without, but also the enemies within. Within meant, in the first instance, inside the Communist Party. But there was also a hint of something even more disturbing, the possibility that the enemy might lie within oneself. Each man feels that somewhere in the depth of his soul is a little kernel of wrecking, writes a student of Stalinist culture. The diarist Stepan Podlubnyi, a son of a dekulakized peasant, knew this feeling of self-distrust and struggled to erase the tainted birthmark his origins had imprinted on him. As the party's collective self-examination continued, becoming ever more hysterical, certainties dissolved. It was possible, evidently, to be a wrecker without meaning to be one or ever knowing it. It was possible to wear a mask that had deceived even oneself. So there we have it. The uh, culture of the Soviet Union um, that required citizens to go through immense self-examination to make sure that um, the, the stains of kind of bourgeois thinking, of counter-revolutionary thinking, were expunged from the mind, caused citizens to um, often agonise over whether this was even ever possible uh, entirely, and certainly encouraged them to observe one another. And the infrastructure for terror existed long before the state, the Great Terror, 
because of a culture of denunciation and suspicion um, and tip-offs to um, the uh, to to the author- Soviet authorities. Um, most of the arrests that come during the Great Terror uh, are as a result of either card indexes looking up people who might have slipped through the net a long time ago, or they are simply neighbourhood neighbourly and workplace denunciations. Anyway, thanks very much. I'll catch you on our next Explaining History podcast. Do come and check us out at the Explaining History Facebook group. Remember to subscribe to this podcast and you can get your uh, weekly diet of Explaining History content coming straight to you. Uh, And check us out at www.explaininghistory.org. Thanks very much, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.